Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Daniel Haifetz. Who te- Hi, great to be here. Hi, uh, who teaches at the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, we'll be talking about his brand new Sunni Press publication, uh, the Science of Satyug, uh, Class, Charisma, and Vedic Revivalism in the All-World Gayatri Pariwar. Um, welcome, welcome, welcome. Yeah. So um, what is your book about? What is this All-World Gayatri Pariwar business? So the All-World Gayatri Pariwar is a uh, movement that is based in North India, uh, specifically Haridwar, is where its headquarters is and where most of the Uh, ethnographic study takes place. Um, This is a movement that um, identifies itself as a spiritual movement, um, more so than religious or in Hindi, adhyatmic rather than dharmic. Um, And they um, think of their primary goal in terms of uh, Vedic style ritual um, that they want to uh, repopularize. Um, they're especially interested in, they think of, of there being two components of this. Um, first, Gayatri recitation, um, which uh, obviously where the name of the movement comes from. Um, that is their core practice. Uh, and second, um, Yajna, um, so basic um, Vedic style uh, offerings of substances like uh, herbs and things like that, Samagri uh, is what it's called, uh, into a fire pit. Um, and they think of those two things as the mother and father of Vedic culture, um, which they want all people uh, everywhere in the world, regardless of identity, uh, to perform. Um, and they think that if enough people do this, uh, it will usher in a new golden age, which is Satyug. And how did you end up studying this movement? So it's it's a bit of a um, happy coincidence in some ways. I I, um, started this project as a dissertation, uh, and my initial interest for my dissertation was to do something with Hindu traditions and science. So uh, it took me a while to find uh, a case that I really wanted to study it through. Uh, My my linguistic background was Hindi, so I knew I wanted to do a a Hindi-speaking movement. And really what it came down to was just spending a lot of time on Google looking for different organizations that made claims about science, looking for organizations that had laboratories attached to them. And that that actually turned out to be the decisive factor in finding this group. They have a laboratory called Brahmavarchas Shod Sanstan, um, which uh, was how I found the movement. Uh, Hindi-based, you know, as I had hoped, um, and and clearly since they they have this laboratory work and they have um, significant numbers of STEM professionals uh, in in their ranks, uh, at least at the ashram, um, doing this kind of work, uh, it was a very it wasn't just sort of something that was rhetorical, um, which is something that you see a lot of people who talk about Hindu traditions and science saying that these oh these are just rhetorical things. I, I thought it was interesting that they were actually doing, they had a lab where they were actually doing this research. And that seemed to me like a very potentially rich uh, ethnographic field. What is the role of science in this movement? So 
this movement uh, has this idea, and you know, when I when I initially proposed this dissertation, I thought I was going to be proving this, uh, but but they very explicitly state uh, everyone everywhere except science, and so since we want everyone everywhere to do this stuff, this is how we've got to prove it. Um, so very much, you know, they they embraced this idea of the universality of science, and since they thought that their practices were universal and not uh, something that was merely rooted in a, a specific tradition, uh, they felt that this was this was the medium uh, to carry their their teachings out to the world, rather than relying on um, you know uh, maybe more traditional uh, uh, foundations of knowledge. So. Um, there's another aspect of this too, which is that they say what they're doing in terms of um, science is not so much a new thing. They believe that it's a rediscovery of the true scientific roots of what was in the Vedas. Uh, their con uh, concept of what the rishis were uh, as the figures who um, revealed the Vedas is that they were scientists. Um, they were ancient scientists who, uh, through their uh, scientific research, were able to perceive truths in the universe um, and record them in the Vedas. Uh, and so they understand themselves as rediscovering the lost scientific roots of this practice. And so they, they do, even though there is this sort of pragmatic, hey, we're, we're doing this because everyone uh, uh, accepts science and this is the way we are going to spread, they also have this sense that what they're doing is not something that is new or disconnected from the past. Do you think it'd be fair to say, without putting words either in your mouth or the mouth of this movement, but do you think it'd be fair to say that the word science here is, is, is invoked as, a, as, as an idiom or as a metaphor, as an analog uh, versus as a methodology, as uh, we think of science in a, in a secular sense? Yeah, I think the movement makes several different kinds of claims with, with reference to science, and at times that is the case. Um, so one of the things that I talk about in the book is, is I, I track all of these different kinds of claims in relation to their ritual practices. So their, their scientific discourse is all about Yagya and Gayatri recitation. And some of this, especially if you look at the work of the founder of the movement, Sri Ram Sharma, um, who was a journalist by profession um, before he, he founded the movement. Um, he talks about things that are analogous to scientific truths. Okay, so like um, the, you know, kurma at the base of your spine that is going to, um, you know, result in the kundalini rising is like an atom. And if you split an atom, all of this energy, uh, you know, comes out. Uh, and, and it's just like that, right? If you, if you, um, if you do the right processes, you can release energy from this potential center of energy in your body. So there's that argument that it's it's analogous to science. Sometimes what they mean by science is that there are causal co connections that do not involve divine intervention, um, right? So it's not that when you do the Gayatri recitation, um, you know, uh, the goddess Gayatri is pleased and, and offers you a boon. It's that the universe just works this way, right? Uh, it, you you are are doing something that will have a, a specific cause and effect relationship on your body and on your environment. Um, but there is also this sense, especially as um, his successor, uh, Dr. Pranav Pandya, who is a medical doctor, uh, his followers call him Dr. Sahab. 
Um, he, uh, once this movement got founded and established, um, even before uh, Dr. Sahab took over, uh, he had this laboratory, uh, Brahmavarcha Shod Sanstan, uh, set up, and he was doing things like, um, and this is this is my my favorite image from from the entire research that that I just keep coming back to. Uh, there's a laboratory set up where he has like a you know yagya pit. Uh, there's an exhaust hood above. This is indoors, and the the exhaust hood pipes the smoke from the yagya into a little chamber where there's uh, pathogens waiting in petri dishes, and uh, you know they observe what the smoke does. Uh, they they even do control experiments, right? They they do things like. Um, they do the the ritual once, uh, chanting the mantras correctly, and then they do it again, just chanting gobbledygook. Uh, and they say that if you're chanting the mantras correctly, because the vibrations of the the mantras affect the smoke, uh, the uh, effect on the pathogens is more pronounced than it would be otherwise. So, so there's there's definitely this part that's sort of about using it, kind of as as an a symbol of authority. Um, but there is also, you know, this, this um, it goes a, a little bit beyond that, where they're also actually doing experiments um, and putting this research out there. Um, and this, you know, gets published and, and circulated and, and uh, um, it, it, it makes the rounds and, and it's, it's compelling to people, right, that they're actually doing this research instead of sort of make, merely making these claims that it's analogous to science. So um, I have to say it was quite synchronistic um, reading your book uh, based on a tutorial that I was uh, leading yesterday. Uh, where was it? Oh, this was actually my platform. It's called the School of Indian Wisdom. And one of the students was asking, you know, you know, when we talk about, we were talking about subtle anatomy in this, in this class. And, and she was asking, well, we talk about, you know, we talk about, um, these concepts of the pedals and the chakras and this and this and this. Um, why do you say it's not science? Isn't it, isn't it, isn't it such that this mantra will make this effect regardless? Isn't it scientific? And we had a really fascinating discussion uh, about that in terms of, well, uh, doesn't science require empiricism, right? Demonstrability, you know, right. there'll never be a microscope that'll detect someone's chakra. It's if it does exist, it's in the it's in the it's in the subtle body, and so I just found it so fascinating reading about this. Um, uh, enough of me yammering on. Uh, let me ask you: What do you see parallels between, um, for example, the Irish Samaj movement and this movement, or other uh, new religious movements? Sure, um, I think in some ways the. The parallels to the Arya Samaj are clearest, and that is in part because, uh, in some sense, the Gayatri Pariwar is maybe a splinter off the Arya Samaj is too um, too extreme a way to put it. Um, but there was a time when Sri Ram Sharma, the founder of the movement, um, was part of the Arya Samaj. In fact, I believe he was uh, the head of the Matara branch uh, for a time. Uh, and the reason why he didn't stick around was because as he began to become more prominent and start putting his own publications out there, he was saying that um, it's okay to worship Mortis, it's okay to do puja. Uh, you know, we don't need to necessarily get rid of all of these aspects of um, popular Hinduism that the Arya Samaj wanted to distance themselves from. 
So this, as you might imagine, the Arya Samaj was not super fond of. Uh, Arya Samaj typically much more um, suspect of things like, you know, puja and, and mortis and, and anything that, that they do not identify as Vedic. Um, so this created a rift and eventually he went his own way. Um, and so you do see some, some uh, vestiges in, in their focus on Vedic style ritual. Um, but you also see this kind of populism. Um, and I attribute that to some extent, uh, especially in the first chapter, I talk about this at length to uh, the influence of Gandhi um, on Sharma. Uh, Sharma, you know, according to his autobiographies um, and later biographies that his successor put out, uh, I guess we could call them hagiographies really if we wanted to. Uh, but, you know, he spent significant times working in the independence movement um, and he was very inspired by, by Gandhi up to a point. Later, toward, toward the end, he, he started to find Gandhi to be a little bit too wishy-washy, I think. Um, but, but earlier on, uh, this was very important to him. And, and in particular, he was very inspired by the idea of village power. So Sharma felt that you know, village power was important not just for uh, the, the sort of political... Uh, activism, right? The, the ability to, to assert independence for India, but also for the ability to uh, change India spiritually. Uh, and he thought that the Arya Samaj was failing that, right? He thought that their message would never appeal to the villages because they were rejecting so many aspects of popular Hinduism. Uh, there are other influences that you could see in here. The Theosophical Society, uh, so Sharma was also interested in the Theosophical Society uh, he, again, you know, once they got less interested in the independence movement, also split with them. Uh, but he found them interesting. And I, some of their eschatology uh, may come from that, uh, that direction. Uh, they have this concept that they're these incorporeal Himalayan sages. And, and Sharma, uh, part of his hagiography is that he has, you know, been instructed by and guided by uh, such figures uh, to bringing back Satyug. So there's a variety of, of influences there. Um, there are plenty more that we could talk about, but I feel like I don't want to go on forever. No, that's plenty, and that's fascinating. Um, it, 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 I find it so fascinating that there's a palpable um, continuation or at least um, 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 a parallel to the Arya Samaj movement, um, and yet there is this inclusion of, as you say, popular Hinduism. It really is interesting. Um, what I wanted to ask, uh, we touched on earlier, uh, but I wanted to ask you about the founder in particular. Tell us about the founder and the founding. Tell us a bit more about that. Sure. So uh, founder, again, Sri Ram Sharma, his followers typically refer to him as Gurudev, and, and I generally uh, follow that convention uh, in my writing. Uh, born in 1911 uh, in a village near Agra. Uh, and he uh, has this dream, uh, may not have been a dream, maybe he, he was awake, uh, but he has this encounter, this vision, I guess is the better way to put it, of an incorporeal uh, yogi uh, who gives him instruction about what he needs to do with his life and what uh, his mission is supposed to be. This yogi charges him with reciting the Gayatri Mantra uh, extensively. Uh, I forget the exact number, but, it, but it's a very significant um, amount. I think it's 18, 18 malas a day. 
Um, so, so this is something that he's supposed to go on doing for a significant period of time. And he's supposed to go um, into the Himalayas uh, beyond uh, Gangotri and Gaumukh, which is the source of the Ganges, to this, uh, this uh, meadow uh, called uh, Nandavan. Um, and at this place, uh, he encounters uh, this community of incorporeal yogis who train him and uh, explain to him more about his purpose and his, his role in bringing back Satyug for all of humanity. Uh, so he makes several of these pilgrimages, I think six in total. Um, and while this is happening, um, he begins laying the groundwork for this movement. Uh, the first really substantive step is the founding of a, uh, a periodical called Akhand Jyoti. Uh, so this is undivided light. Part of this whole process is he's supposed to keep this oil lamp burning uh, uh, endlessly. Uh, and so this is where this comes from. And this this lamp is is still uh, at Shantikunj in, in the old apartment. Um, so it's a, an important sort of relic from this era and image for the movement. So this periodical is putting out uh, his spiritual vision, and it's part of what caused that that rift with the Arya Samaj. This starts to come out. They begin the process a little bit before World War II breaks out, but but World War II caused some complications in starting a periodical. So so really, it doesn't um, start publication regularly until after. Uh, some years later, as the circulation broadens, they use this as a platform to promote a very large and public. Yagya that is open to everyone. Uh, this is in the early 50s. I think it's 1953. Uh, women, men, all castes, um, everyone can do this thing. Uh, and very, very large numbers of people turn out uh, to this event. Uh, protesters come who are upset by the fact that, uh, you know, people of all castes and women are being allowed to do this ritual. Uh, but they, they go through with it anyway. And this is when he starts, Sharma starts uh, initiating disciples. Um, then a little bit later in the 70s, uh, as he's going on, uh, I think his second to last or his last pilgrimage into the Himalayas, uh, they find this uh, place. So the, the, the periodical uh, was founded in Mathura. Um, and this time in the early 70s is when Shantikunj, the main ashram, is established. Uh, at first, just a small collection of buildings uh, near Haridwar, um, but it continues to expand and expand to the point where it now uh, holds thousands and thousands of, uh, of people, um, some of them permanent residents, but, but many of them, um, especially during pilgrimage season, are people who are moving through to the uh, Choti Chardham, which are pilgrimage sites um, in the Garhwal Himalayas. How um, large? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, how large is the movement currently? That's a bit tricky to estimate. Um, the ashram maybe has two, three thousand permanent residents. Uh, just a very rough estimate. Um, the figure that the Gayatri Parivar tends to use for estimating the size of their movement is the circulation of a um, which is which is well into the millions. Uh, off the top of my head, I think it's twenty six million that they say. Um, but it's been a while since I've looked at that figure, so so I may be I may be off on that. Uh, they don't really, you know, the, that that's the estimate that they provide. Um, to me, I'm not as interested in, in, you know, doing the exact quantitative work and fact checking as as exploring the significance of, you know, why, why they say it is what it is. 
Um, so I can't, I can't claim to have verified that. No, that's fine. Just to give mm-hmm. the listeners a sense of the movement um, and your work. Um, what, uh, how do I phrase this? So this idea of Satyug, mm-hmm. uh, according to the movement, where are they drawing this idea from, if not Puranic lore? Like, where is this, how do they understand that, that concept? Do you, have you looked at that? How do they understand what Satyug is? Um, yeah, it, it is a, a bit of a distinctive interpretation of Satyug, certainly because there's generally, uh, at least in my studies, the concept is that time kind of proceeds in a cycle through the yugas uh, in a fixed set of periods, right? Uh, but they have this idea that human action can cause Satyug to come back, and that that is a distinctive notion. Uh, I have not seen them point to a specific, uh, you know, uh, source outside of the movement for this possibility. My impression is that the movement really is citing the authority of these incorporeal yogis uh, as as the sense of where uh, this revival of satyug can come from. Uh, they gave these instructions that it's possible for it to be brought back and that, that it was Sharma's mission to make it happen. And so, you know, they're making it happen. Uh, so I didn't find that they were citing a textual source for that. No, it's fascinating. It really is, both uh, in terms of uh, this ethos of the Aisamaj um, movement and yet using this very Puranic, not Vedic idea of, 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 of the yugas and innovating that in the sense of, well, we can actually, um, this isn't a function of time, it's a function of effort. Yeah. And we can actually, you know, uh, we can turn the cosmic clock a little faster through our yagnas. Um, it's fascinating. Um, tell us a bit about the structure of your book. Uh, sure. So the, the book has six chapters, uh, intro and a, a conclusion in addition to those. Um, the odd chapters tend to focus on the leadership of the movement, uh, starting with Sharma or Gurudev. Um, and looking at his, uh, especially the, the uh, relationship he had with the Arya Samaj and Gandhi and how those informed his, uh, his uh, concept of what the spiritual movement should be. Uh, the third chapter looks at Dr. Sahab, um, who is the current head of the movement. Uh, and it's very concerned with the routinization of charisma. Uh, so what happens, you know, we, we've seen many of these guru-centered movements in the modern period that are led by charismatic gurus. When the guru dies, the movement goes to pieces and is torn apart by scandals and, and all of this stuff. Uh, but the Gayatri Pariwar continues to grow, uh, continues to, to show signs of being healthy. And so I was interested in what happens there. Uh, and so in that chapter, uh, I consider uh, the, the power of scientific authority that Dr. Sahab embodies as a medical scientist who has done this research in this laboratory uh, as a factor that effectively routinizes the charisma. It gives this sense that there's this possibility of continuing innovation through this research. Uh, and, and at the same time, he's kind of done a, a good job of... Uh, updating the Gayatri Pariwar for the, the changes that are happening in India. He comes to power um, uh, as the head of the movement in the early 90s, uh, just as liberalization is happening, as 
Um, you know, the, the BJP is starting to, to become more popular um, and he's able to tap into some of those, those trends very effectively. Uh, the fifth chapter uh, talks about the spouses of both of these leaders. So, so both generations of leadership, uh, you know, were uh, done by a husband-wife team, um, patriarchal in nature. So, so the men are kind of uh, in more of a position of power. But the argument of that chapter is that uh, the wives have an extremely important role. Um, so, you know, we talked about Gayatri, but we didn't talk about Parivar uh, when, when I kind of gave the background on the movement. And people talk about how this movement feels like a family. So part of my argument in that chapter is that the, uh, the uh, uh, wives of these leaders, uh, their names are uh, Shelbala Pandya um, and uh, Bhagwati Devi Sharma, um, who are called Mataji, right, mother, and Gigi, uh, big sister, you could say. Um, they are uh, doing this very important emotional work uh, that people maybe not quite directly, uh, but it's part of what established this sense that they are part of a pariwar or a family. Um, people in the movement, when I did my interviews with them, they, they consistently talk about this as something that distinguishes the Gayatri Pariwar from other ashram-based uh, you know, spiritual movements in India today. Uh, so, so that's the way I explore um, uh, the leadership. Uh, the even chapters are more about the community broadly. The second chapter deals with uh, the ashram residents. Uh, it talks about uh, the stories that led them to Shanti Kunj. Um, oftentimes this has to do with the uh, sense of disillusionment that some of them felt with their careers, especially for the younger generation, people who um, entered the job market you know, basically after liberalization. Uh, they found that they were working for these big corporations and they were just about turning a profit and they wanted to feel like they were doing something good for the country. Um, and they felt that it was just sort of greed uh, that they were satisfying with their jobs. Uh, so this drives them to want to find uh, an alternative. Um, chapter four deals with ritual. Uh, it talks about um, the ritual practices, Gayatri recitation and yoga, a little bit about Arati. Uh, and it uh, explores how scientific discourses are attached to that. Chapter six is mostly about space, the space of the ostrom physically and how it's situated in uh, spatial networks at the local, regional, uh, looking at the pilgrimage networks, uh, national, especially dealing with nationalist politics and global scale, looking at diaspora and flows of information. What would you say is your key takeaway argument conclusion in the book? Yeah, so so for me, the, the question that I came to this research with was, you know, what what is driving people, what is the appeal in, in looking at these spiritual or religious practices scientifically? On some level, I, I had this assumption that that people would think of religion and spirituality as a sort of escape from disenchantment in modernity. Uh, and so that was that was an idea that this disabused me of uh, doing this research. Um, and I was also interested in, in finding out, there's a lot of talk about, a lot of literature about science and religion in relation to colonialism in India, uh, but I wanted to find out about what is continuing to drive this in India uh, today. And so what I found, especially as I talked to these, these people in the middle class who had these experiences of disillusionment with uh, their private sector jobs, 
in contrast with the older generations who were working in public sector jobs uh, before liberalization and, and stayed there until retirement uh, before coming to Shanti Kunj. Um, my argument is essentially that uh, part of the appeal of this kind of scientific discourse is that this generation of people who who felt that you know they believed in this old Neruvian promise of you know uh, going to an IIT and becoming you know uh, a scientist or an engineer and helping to build up India, they still believed in that, um, but they didn't find jobs that let them do that. Uh, they wanted to have a moral purpose for their work, um, and the Gayatri Pariwar first through its its use of scientific ideas and through the growing role that it has made for communication technology in circulating those ideas transnationally, um, it essentially gives these people a sense that they can use those STEM skills that they got in their IIT education uh, to serve humankind. Um, India, right? But but also as globalization takes root, there's a sense that India also needs to be integrated into the world. And this middle class uh, is in, in ways a global middle class. So they're they're essentially trying to fulfill that Neruvian promise, but not through jobs, but instead through participation in this group that gives them this sense of moral purpose to their STEM work. Could you tell us about the 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 universality or perceived posited universality of this movement um, in terms of, so for example, um, um, can folks be part of this movement and not be engaged in uh, or identified as uh, Hindu, for example. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so they, you know, they don't identify themselves as a Hindu movement, just like they're, they're rejecting uh, gender and caste-based adhikara for these, these, um, um, uh, these ritual practices. Uh, they are rejecting religious-based, you know, uh, uh, license to, to practice these. They think everyone should do it. When I went to the, the ashram for the first time, um, you know, the very next morning, uh, they had me in a Gyagya Shala. Um, I think they, they needed to put a doti on me. Uh, and that, that was really all it took to make it acceptable. Um, no initiation, uh, nothing like that. Um, so everyone gets to do these rituals doesn't matter what your religion is. There's no conversion that's required. They do do life cycle rituals there, Hindu-based life cycle rituals, um, and those are available, but they're not required by anyone in order to do these practices. Uh, so, you know, they are very specific in part of how they they distinguish this from uh, between spirituality and religion um, is, is, you know, they say that anyone can do spirituality. Spirituality is universal. It might have a historical association of some sort with a religious tradition like Hinduism, uh, but anyone can practice this and therefore it is spiritual. Um, and science also plays a role. The university, universality of science is part of what plucks this practice out of the particularism of, of religion and Hindu uh, identity and transplants it into that universal space where Muslims can do this uh, and, and according to the Gayatri Padivar, should, right? Everyone should. So, yeah, their universalism is, is partly about leaving that behind. And this is not something that you do instead of your religion. It's, it's in addition to, according to them. They don't want people to stop being Muslim or stop being Christian. They just say, whatever you're doing, do this in addition to it. Is it fair to say that the emphasis is more on practice rather than belief in this movement? 
I think that's that's pretty fair to say. Uh, there is definitely a sense that the reason for practice has a certain importance. Um, you know, people have a, a certain sense that uh, you know the the scientific nature of this is is relevant, and the fact that it has this authority behind it. But I wouldn't say that you know authority is necessarily uh, in the realm of belief. It's it's kind of it's kind of in between, right? It's uh, I mean I, I talk about this in terms of emotion a lot in the book, um, partly because as I was writing this, I was I was you know getting exposed to affect theory, and I was very interested in all of that. Um, and so, you know, I think of authority as being a kind of power that's not necessarily totally rooted in the verbal and in the cognitive and, and in ideas that we might call belief. So that may, to some extent, be, be my own framework that I was using to interpret uh, the movement, you know, showing itself. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, there's a sense that what you do is what's important. It's important that you do these rituals. It's important that you behave um, in the correct way, whatever you believe, these things are going to happen. So it certainly isn't like like this Christian notion that that you have to have faith in order for this to work, um, or you have to believe the right you know orthodoxy. Um, at the very least, in that sense, belief is uh, at best secondary. I think you touched on this uh, earlier, uh, but what most surprised you about this research? That's a good question. Um, there are a lot of things that I found surprising. I think to some extent, the political complexity of the movement is really the thing that surprised me the most. Uh, and it's something that I, I feel that, I mean, definitely continued work needs to be done because I think the complexity of the movement politically uh, continues to develop. Um, the the founder of the movement, you know, he he was um, in many ways a Gandhian, but he also had these connections to proto-Hindu nationalist uh, uh, figures and movements. I mentioned the Arya Samaj, uh, Madan Mohan Malviya uh, of the Hindu Mahasabha was another influential figure for him. Um, and you see some of those components uh, linked together at his stage of the movement, right? You see the sense that India needs to be bound together by these Vedic style practices, which are not Hindu, but still, um, this is a thing that that is expressing uh, something that is is core to Indian identity. Uh, there's not any sense of militants, right? He has that that very Gandhian um, sense of of nonviolence and, and peacefulness, um, and there's this disconnect from Hindu identity. But but there's it's it's a little bit of a complex tightrope that he's trying to walk. Uh, and this becomes even more complicated with his successor because his successor has more clear Hindu nationalist sympathies. Uh, the relationship of Gandhianism to Hindu nationalism uh, interpretively has been changed by the contemporary BJP uh, to some extent. And so, you know, this has added another layer to the, the ideological um, networks that the movement is connected to. And so the movement really resists ideological ca char characterization or categorization, I guess you could say. It doesn't fit neatly into one box because it's part of this web of different ideological and political movements um, that go in many different directions. They even talk happily about Karl Marx and, and you know, socialism alongside all of this other 
uh, other materials. So, so in part, it's that that resistance to categorization that uh, was extremely challenging to deal with uh, in terms of writing, and and that uh, I found surprising at times. I know I use the F word a lot on this podcast, but that is fascinating. It really is. Um, um, what uh, I'd like your take on this um, this distancing from the label of, of Hindu or Hinduism based on what is the perspective there? Why is that? Why is it the case that these um, Vedic practices uh, aren't Hindu in the eyes of um, the, the movement? Sure. Uh, well, I think it's partly because they understand being Hindu as more or less a fixed identity. When I, I mean, to some extent, I got better answers to the the religion spirituality distinct questions um, and, and how they make those distinctions. But I think it's applicable to this question that you're asking. So, like when I talked to people about, you know, what does it mean to say this is spiritual but not religious? Uh, whether I was talking to people in Hindi or in English, you know, some different people would choose different ways to communicate with me. Religion was always Dharma, right? Religion is always duties that are fixed based on your identity. Um, and so they would talk about, you know, obligations to particular people, and that is what religion is. Um, and so being Hindu uh, was about having those particular sets of uh, obligations that Hindus have uh, based on caste and other aspects of their identity. Spirituality was for them about self-development. It was about cultivating virtues. Uh, and they understand Gayatri recitation and yoga as being functionally about cultivating virtues. Uh, they do have the sense that it affects the environment physically as well, and it affects the body physically. And there's this linking of, uh, of health and virtue, uh, which is a whole separate topic. But because they see their practices as being about virtue cultivation, uh, it's spiritual and not religious and therefore not tied to Hindu identity, right? Because being Hindu is an identity. Um, that's, it's also uh, connected in large ways to the distinction, the, I guess you could say epistemological distinction that this is based in tradition and not, or this is based in science according to them and not tradition. Uh, so, so this is another component of it. I just find that so, so interesting for so many reasons. And I, I think to myself, my, isn't it great that we rebranded this podcast once called New Books in Hindu Studies to New Books in Indian Religions, because how could we have this book on here under Hindu Studies? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we could we could question whether it's even appropriate for it to be, uh, 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 since it's about religion. I don't know, they might, they might take issue with that. Well, um, I do in the book. I do in the book say, you know, well, for religious studies purposes, this is close enough, close enough for what we do. But, uh, but certainly it, it's not a term that with their understanding of what religion is, they might question it. Well, we, um, we, um, we may have to look into cross-posting this interview to one of the science podcast channels at New Books Network. We'll see. Um, what, uh, was there anything else about the book or the research that you hoped we'd touch on? Uh, let me see. Uh, I think we hit on some of the stuff that I wanted to talk about already. Yeah, I think, 
we are good. Well, it's always nice when we accomplish needful in an organic manner. Yep. <laughs> um, um, this, let's maybe this is obvious to you and I, but let's drive this home a bit. Who might be interested in this book? Who's it? Who's it for? Uh, sure, I would say uh, anyone who is interested in, uh, apropos of the podcast title, uh, uh, religion or religion-like things in India. Uh, anyone who is interested in understanding science and the lives of, of STEM workers, anyone who is interested in the Indian middle class, uh, anyone who's interested in the effects of liberalization on India, um, or generally ethnographic studies of India, because the book primarily is uh, ethnographic. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm religious studies, so I do talk about literature a little bit and history a little bit, uh, more so than maybe a pure uh, or true, you know, anthropologist might, but um, the bulk of it is ethnographic. Fascinating. And um, what is the next project? Will you be studying this group again or something else do you think? Yeah. So, so the next project, I may integrate uh, some additional research on this group. I do want to stay in the same region, um, but my goal is to look at some of the ecological issues uh, in the region of Uttarakhand. Um, this is something that, that my attention was drawn to shortly after I conducted my field research when uh, the uh, horrible flooding happened um, in the Garhwal region um, that resulted in you know, many pilgrims being stranded um, at some of these sites uh, up in the mountains uh, and you know, villages being wiped off the map. Um, and you know, when this happened, I, I messaged my contacts in Haridwar very far downstream from, from where, where a lot of this was, but they're very connected to that network of pilgrims. And, you know, they talked about how the, um, the state was pursuing this method of development that, uh, that focused on pilgrimage, which has a significant ecological impact in these delicate regions. They built these hydroelectric dams to support the, uh, uh, this influx of, of people. And part of the cause of these floods was these hydroelectric dams. Um, failing, they aggravated the flooding significantly. So uh, I'm very interested in looking further into what, uh, you know, NGOs in uh, Uttarakhand uh, are doing uh, in response to this fallout, how they're trying to uh, counter the uh, interests of the state, how they're plugged into um, national and, and even global networks as they, um, as they negotiate the relationships between these pilgrimage sites, which are ever more popular and, and ever more important part of the state's economy and, and increasingly of, um, you know, it's politicized to a certain extent as well as that they've become uh, important to a certain kind of Hindu identity um, and how they negotiate this in relation to their ecological concerns. Well, this is still in very early stages, um, but I'm looking forward to, to getting um, a good chunk of reading done this summer, and, and hopefully once uh, once we're able to travel internationally again uh, freely, uh, I can uh, get started with it in earnest. Fantastic. We'll have to have you back when that research is out. Thank you. Thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. I enjoyed our conversation. Great. For those of you who are listening, uh, we've been speaking with Daniel Heifetz about his new SUNY um, the New Studies series book, The Science of Satyug, uh, Class Charisma and Vedic Revivalism in the All-World Gayatri Pariwar. 
Um, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening, and keep contemplating uh, the relationship between science and religion. Take care.